millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I think in especially in national security community, you folk tend to focus on downside risk. Um, so, you know, what could happen, what could go wrong? You tend, you tend to not focus on the upside risk, which are the opportunities that these people can bring into the organization. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Olivia Shen, Director with the ANU National Security College. Today's podcast is recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. This episode is part of our mini-series focusing on cultural and linguistic diversity in the Australian national security community. Today, we'll be zooming in on the experiences of Chinese Australians, which has seen its fair share of change through the ups and downs of the bilateral relationship. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jennifer Stu, Project Director of the Multiculturalism, Identity and Influence Project at the Lowy Institute, and Yun Zhang, current Australian Institute of International Affairs China Matters Fellow and a former Commonwealth Public Servant. Welcome, Jennifer and Yun. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Now, I might start with you, Jennifer. Um, you're the lead author of the Lowy Institute's Being Chinese in Australia Research, and this is a multi-year survey of public opinion in Chinese communities. Uh, you guys recently released the latest round of uh, research reports in April. Can you talk us through some of those findings and the key ways in which Chinese Australians' views on national security and foreign affairs differs from the rest of the Australian population? Yeah, so let's start with some broad findings and questions we've tracked over the last three years. And that is, um, you know, 92% of Chinese Australian rate Australia as a very good or good place to live. And concomitantly, 75% say they have a moderate or great sense of belonging to Australia. Um, and experience of discrimination, uh, particularly around um, experience of physical threat and abuse have declined by 4% over the last year to 14% in the latest survey. And, you know, there's a great deal of um, confidence and trust in Australia and the Australian Prime Minister, uh, Anthony Albanese, more so than any other countries we surveyed or any other leaders we surveyed um, in the past years. So I think for on the whole, there, there's, there, is, there is that narrative that there is a lot of um, confidence and trust in Australia and Australia's uh, Prime Minister. But I guess on the flip side is when we survey Chinese Australians and their sentiments towards broader geopolitical issues, such as, you know, um, threat perceptions around military conflict, um, trust in leaders like um, Xi Jinping of Vladimir Putin, for example, there are just, I think on the whole, um, uh, less 
uh, of a threat perception level among Chinese Australians compared to the broader Australian population. Um, we used the Lowy Institute poll 2022 as a comparison point around those issues. And I think um, that says something about, you know, the lived experiences of Chinese Australians, whether they come from uh the People's Republic of China or Taiwan, um, who see themselves as Chinese or, um, you know, Southeast Asia. Um, so I think uh, I'll leave it here and we can get into sort of more specifics, um, of those data points, um, in the conversation. But I think you know, we start with sort of positive findings about sense of belonging, um, pride in Australia and confidence in Australia and Australia's prime minister. That all sounds really positive. Um, and it's interesting to see that that is that sense of belonging has held pretty strong and has actually increased mm. considering the ups and downs in the broader kind of relationship between the two countries. Um, can you, does your surveys and particularly sort of in the focus groups, um, ha, does it pick up on how some of the political and economic tensions in the bilateral relationships, how they've impacted Chinese Australians, whether it's in their personal or professional lives or that sense of belonging? Yeah, so um, one of the questions we've asked um, over the last few years is, do you, um, do you see China as economic partner or security threat more? And seven out of 10 uh, of Chinese Australians say China is more of an economic partner rather than a security threat. And that statistic has hold um, relatively the same over the last three years. And in the focus group, we fleshed this idea out. And I think for the most part, um, irrespective of um, place of birth, um, or country of origin, for example, uh, for those who identify with having Chinese heritage, there is just a, a more practical outlook on how Chinese Australians see China. It's more, uh, for many who've migrated from, uh, from China or from, um, the region, uh, have small businesses uh, or small medium entrepreneurs who to some extent rely on, um, you know, uh, economic engagement or trade engagement or the flow of international Chinese students to their small or medium uh, businesses in sort of capital cities across Australia. So I think on the whole, there are a sort of more practical outlook as to how Chinese Australians see uh, China. And that threat perception is much lower um, uh, amongst Chinese Australian communities than, say, compared to the broader Australian population. Yeah. So it sounds like they have a, a bit more of a pragmatic and multifaceted view on the relationship. That's kind of reflects more of their their lived engagement with China and with the yeah, Chinese diaspora as well. That's right. So for those who've migrated to Australia or those who are first or one and a half or second generation uh, Chinese Australian, they have sort of more intimate or immediate ties to China, whether it is through family, whether it is through business or whether it is through, um, you know, sort of more um, media consumption, I guess. Um, there is just that much more of an intimate connection to what is happening um, at the local level in China. Uh, and uh, through lived experience, their engagement, for example, with um, customers who are from uh, People's Republic of China, whether they be international students or tourists, for example. Can I ask you a question about one and a half generation? That's not actually a term I've heard before. Can you unpack that a bit for me? 
so I think uh, Yoon and I had this discussion before, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I wasn't born in Australia. I was born in Taiwan. Um, and um, my grandparents were born in China and left China in 1949 to go to Taiwan. And we, my, my parents and I migrated to Australia you know, more than 30 years ago. Um, so I'm not first generation. I guess m- my parents will be first generation, uh, but I'm not second generation. Second generation will be those who were born in Australia mm. with ethnic Chinese heritage. So I'm somewhere in between, so one and a half. <laughs> so, you know, with both uh, one foot there and one foot here, I guess. And they often experience unique uh, challenges with identities because, uh, you know, they're neither first generation nor second generation. And growing up, um, um, I mean, I grew up in Newcastle where um, it wasn't very diverse mm-hmm. and that um, posed some uh, challenges for myself. That's a really interesting way to conceptualize it. And I think that probably connects with the lived experience of a lot of Chinese Australians, that one and a half. But it's nice to like to have you guys kind of put a name to it. Like I feel sort of the same. Like I grew up in Lane Cove, which in the 90s was not very diverse um, for Chinese Australians at all either. Um, that being said, I think the Australian Bureau of Statistics is having a meltdown right now about how they're going to record the experience of one and a half generations yeah. and included in census surveys. Um, mm. So now, Jennifer, I know that there has been some criticism of the methodology that you guys have used um, for the research, um, particularly Professor John Fitzgerald, China scholar at Swinburne University, has sort of criticised your inclusion of Chinese students and short-term residents in the research, and that may have skewed the results in his perspective. Um, What's your response to that? So, I mean, yes, uh, I'm glad we're having this discussion around methodology and, you know, broadening to this this discussion to which the Australian um, newspaper published um, Professor Fitzgerald's um, op-ed and um, my myself and my research director, Herve Lemieux, wrote a response to that. And our response is that it's important to include a diversity of voices, particularly so we include Australian citizens, permanent residents, and those who are here in Australia on a long-term visa of a year or more. And that includes Chinese uh, international Chinese students and um, workers um, work, coming to Australia to work as well. And I think it's important important to include these people because many do stay on um, and seek pathways to permanent residency and ultimately um, Australian citizens. And so I th- if we ignore that part of the population who are also taxpayers or contribute to the economy in some way, but they don't have a voice and um, when they actually get to that pathway to citizenship or permanent residency, it, we miss a gap in their lived experience in Australia and we miss the opportunity of hearing what they have to say about a range of issues. And I understand Professor Fitzgerald's concern, but I think the um, the survey allows for a diversity of opinions and it's called being Chinese in Australia um, for a reason. Mm. The, yeah. That's a good point. And you? many of them um, also are still politically engaged despite uh, being um, – not Australian citizens, international students, they uh, do have elections on campus. And some of the permanent residents uh, uh, go out for, um, uh, they participate in um, uh, campaigns for political candidates as well. Yeah. So I think for for the most part, I uh, we stand by the methodology 
And, um, you know, we, we only have to think about sort of the review that came out of Home Affairs around the migration system recently and what the um, Home Affairs Minister have had to say at the National Press Club a couple of months ago about the difficulties and challenges for um, migrants who come to Australia and that pathway to transition from, say, a student to worker to permanent residence to citizenship is fraught and difficult for so many people. And to miss an opportunity to hear what they have to say about, you know, that often there's a lot of positive things. And in the focus groups, there are, it's an amalgam of different Chinese uh, people of Chinese heritage, uh, citizens, permanent residents, international students, workers. And on the whole, over the last three years, having done 15 focus groups with over 100 Chinese Australians, on the whole, there is a positive view about Australia and living in Australia. But those challenges of becoming permanent resident, our citizens, is an everyday lived experience for these people. Yeah. And it also reflects that, you know, like you said, it, it is a long process to get to that point. But I think it also reflects that legal status and how it connects with identity can be quite subjective mm. and your legal status might not necessarily reflect how you see yourself as a citizen of a country. That's right. Um, I know quite a few um, uh, people from Southeast Asia, from say Malaysia or Vietnam, and they have never been to China, um, but they still see themselves as Chinese. Mm. We'll be right back. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So then if we can sort of think about what are some of the policy implications of um, the surveys and the research work you've done and those public opinions, particularly where they differ from the rest of the Australian population, can Jennifer or Yoon, would you like to kind of comment or frame that? Yes. So around, so in the survey we ask about, um, and this is also asked in the Lowy Main poll as well, um, Chinese Australians and Australian Population and their threat perception level um, uh, around you know traditional and non-traditional threats. So let me just start, for example, with um, a non-traditional threat: climate change. For example, on the whole, Chinese Australians have lower threat perception level about climate change and its um, its potential impact for Australia's vital interests in the next ten years. Um, there are there's uh, thirty two thirty six percent say it is a critical threat. 
36% of Chinese Australians say it is a critical threat, climate change, compared to 64% of the broader Australian population. And that is climate change being a critical threat to Australia's vital interests in the next 10 years. So there is quite a big gap between the two population groups. But when we survey, um, you know, around traditional threat levels, um, so one of the um, option was um, potential for US and China to engage in military conflict over Taiwan in the next 10 years. That is the inverse So for the Australian population. So the older you are as the broader Australian population, the greater your threat perception level about conflict is. Mm-hmm. But that does not hold true for the Chinese Australian population. It actually bounces around. So um, those who are 45 to 59-year-old who are Chinese Australians have a greater sense of threat perception around conflict. And um, 60 plus have the lowest threat perception <laughs> level around um, conflict between US and China over Taiwan. So, um, so uh, how do we interpret these findings? Uh, mm. If you just look at sort of Chinese Australian population, I think, uh, I guess um, I can only think of, you know, uh, my grandparents and my sort of older generation um, family members telling me, you know, it wisdom comes with age. <laughs> Very Confucian, yeah. but also rather patronizing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, and, and it's going to be interesting to see how sort of some of those threat perceptions um, like affect um, either activism or public discourse around these conversations. Um, we've already seen sort of a heightened public discussion about the likelihood of a hot conflict um, mm. uh, over Taiwan. And there's very there's a wide spectrum of views on the likelihood of that or, or the the outcome. I think everyone agrees that the outcome would be horrendous. Like mm. the outcome of any war would be horrendous. Um, but it really speaks to if the if a part of the population really believes that it's likely as opposed to people who are hoping that with age comes wisdom and we can avert war um that kind of changes the conversation quite a bit yeah once you believe it is likely i guess the next so what you'll be focused on will not be how to avert the war because you already believe it's likely um your focus then will be to you know to manage if a war happens and how to prepare for war so i think um the the threat perception does change how you uh view the government should act yeah i think you know um particularly the Older Chinese Australians, say 60 plus, uh, will, um, some will have migrated from uh, China or elsewhere from the region and they will have had sort of more direct um, experience with conflicts like the Vietnam War, the Korean War, um, even China's own civil war, right? And so the, if you've had those experiences of have witnessed, you know, conflict, um, then you would ask why, you mm. know, Surely policymakers or politicians will see the horrors of going to war and um, that should serve as a lesson. So I, I guess, you know, I think of my grandparents who um, left China in 1949 as refugees and um, settled in Taiwan. 
shortly thereafter. I think their experiences of civil conflict have really um, shaped, you know, uh, my parents, their family, my family, that, you know, why why would you engage in this kind of war talk when mm. we've had that? When we've had that lived experience yes. and yes. clearly it's within our living memory and it yes. hadn't turned out well for anyone. Yes. Mm. So besides, you know, obviously averting actual war, um, do Chinese Australians have a view on what the government's policy priorities should be? So in the focus groups we asked, you know, about these issues and, again, um, there is a pragmatic view um, that Australia must uh, do what's what is best for its national security interest. But it doesn't mean that there is a wholesale support for, you know, things like AUKUS or um, being closer to um, the US. I think the, prag- the pragmatism stands from, well, uh, we see the benefits that China brings economically, but also the the security um, and the history that Australia has with the US makes it somewhat inevitable that we will be drawn closer um, in times of uncertainty to uh, sort of our natural allies, I guess. But um, I guess that's where, as a Chinese Australian, I see that tension, I feel that tension. Um, maybe if you didn't have that ethnic uh, heritage, you wouldn't necessarily feel that you know, are you, which you can't, can you sit on the fence essentially is the question, mm. right? You see the benefits of both sides. But um, I think for many Chinese Australians, the idea is that Australia has had a economic boon thanks to its trade with China. But given sort of the the future outlook, the uncertainty can Australia still have its cake and eat it too? That is, benefit from its trade with China, but becoming, um, you know, the alliance getting ever closer to the US. Um, because at some point that something's got to give, right? Um, I don't, I think a lot of Chinese Australians will, will ask, well, or, you know, if they've come from China, they will see, well, at some point China's going to ask Australia, how can you continue to trade with us? How can you still benefit from this relationship when your defence posture, your national security policy is, you know, aimed at China or looking towards China as being the threat, mm. right? And conversely, the same ask might come from the United States That's as right. well. Um, Absolutely. How can you continue your defence posture when your economic posture is so geared towards selling things to China? Right. Um, which I think is also probably a good um, a, a good way to segue into talking about Chinese Australians in the national security community because some of those conversations and the policy advice and those decisions about alignment, um, about natural partnerships and how we either hedge or sit on the fence and how long that can last, a lot of those conversations are happening in forums where there are fewer Chinese Australians present or Chinese Australians contributing to and informing those discussions. Um, I want to start um, with you by talking about research that you alerted me to um, by economists Bob Brunig, David Hansel and Nunu Nguyen, our colleagues here at um, the ANU. And they've recently released some research on promotions across the Australian public service. 
And what they found was that at every promotion point, Anglo applicants were more likely to get promoted over non-Anglo applicants. And in fact, the gap gets higher and higher um, the more you move up the APS ranks. Hmm. So from APS 4 to APS 5 and APS 5 to APS 6 levels, Anglo applicants were one-tenth more likely to be promoted. From APS 6 to EL1 levels, it was one-quarter. From EL1 to EL2, it was one-half. And from EL2 to SES, Anglo applicants were 60% more likely to be promoted. Um, You and you're the one who sent me this article. (laughs) What was your reaction to this? Um, Did the findings surprise you? And sort of how does it compare to your research um, more specifically on Chinese-Australian representation in the APS? Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me um, because you can see quite visually when you look through the organisation chart of different departments that the SES represent there are not diverse. And the figures you cited is, is all, it's also really important to remember that those figures compound. So, you know, the, when you go from, for example, EO1 to EO2, there's already a small group that gets to EO2. And then from that small group to get to, to SES, it's even harder. Whereas for some other um, underrepresented groups, the disadvantage is early on. So it's harder to get to, I say, EO1, EO2 level. But then once you get there, for some of them, it's actually easier to get to SES. But for CALD, the, the promotion is, um, is the, the, the number is dismal at every level and that's compounded. So that's uh, important point to remember. And I think it was also interesting, the research bears out that non-Anglo public servants are disadvantaged for promotion even if they were born in Australia, whether they were second generation or maybe 1.5 generation, <laughs> or if even if they had migrated well before starting primary school. So That's right. Language proficiency is clearly not the barrier here. No, it's not. Um, so I think it uh, does strongly suggest that there is a uh, institutional and cultural problem of um, potentially racial discrimination within the public service when it comes to uh, promotion. And I would just give a quick shout out also that this um, this research covered 10 years of data from census surveys and captures, I think, the experiences and the reporting of over 2 million public servants uh, up to the year 2020. So it is a really comprehensive piece of analysis. So well done, Bob. He uh, has an office just down the hall from us. (laughs) Thanks for your research. And uh, thank you for actually capturing some of that and bringing some data to the conversation Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I think that's really important and to, to see how those trends have shifted or if they haven't shifted at all. Um, yeah, so that's another th- thing is that um, it appears that, um, you know, some people say, oh, we just have to wait, that um, it, the, the problem will resolve itself, um, you know, five years, 10 years later as uh, the new migrants get more socialized. But I think um, this research does suggest that waiting is probably not the solution, that we need to take proactive measures um, to ensure that we capture the capability of um, cult people in the APS. And on that, um, what do you think would be some more proactive measures? And, and more broadly, why is it important to capture that capability? Um, so I'll speak from the perspective of Chinese Australian because that's Australians because that's uh, where I've looked into. So, for example, Chinese Australians uh, tend to have higher China capability than the general population. 
um, learning a Chinese language, whether it is Mandarin or Cantonese or Shanghainese, um, is incredibly difficult for people who only whose first language, primary language, is English. But Chinese Australians. Um, especially even in second generation, tend to have a higher grasp of uh, the language and also the culture of China. So they have a higher China capability. Yet, um, uh, uh, a recent report has shown that those with China capability has in fact tried to hide their China capability uh, due to the... Um, the nasty and quite toxic uh, debate, public debate when it comes to China. So on the one hand, there is a group with China capability, and on the other hand, they are hiding that capability. And we see that from a lot of, um, you know, SES, deputy secretary, especially, or secretary level, they often say that APS needs more China capability, needs more Asian capability. Yet when we look at... Um, how Chinese Australians with uh, capability are treated in the uh, APS by uh, their direct line managers, by middle managers, um, their capability is not being valued at all. Um, I've spoken to a lot of Chinese Australians in the public service. And for example, some of them um, has been told that it's because of the ethnic background that um, they are being um, basically prevented from working on topics to do with China because there's a perceived conflict of interest and that conflict of interest is due to that ethnic background. Um, and that is a very worrying thing, the fact that they have China capability and we're not utilising them. I think Yun made a really good point to me um, about a month ago about how risk is being perceived within the Australian public service, that there's a negative risk perception of your ethnic heritage working on sort of these issues right rather than seeing it as a uh, as an opportunity. a as an opportunity right or yeah. an asset a yeah. strategic an asset. asset yeah so i think in especially in national um security community um the risk is often you folk tend to focus on downside risk um so you know what could happen what could go wrong you tend you tend to not focus on the upside risk which are the opportunities that this uh uh, people can bring into the organization. Yeah, I think, you know, you only have to think about the greater diversity um, of your pool of thinkers or policymakers, the greater range of your hypothesis and solutions to the problem. If everybody in the room looks like you, has the same experience, has the same background, then your solution or, or your um, hypotheses are going to be quite limited, right? Given that we live in a very complex world with complex issues, we need a diversity of thinkers mm. and policy prescriptions or policy thought to um, address those um, complexity that Australia or the region will face in the coming future. So, uh, yeah, so I think definitely when Yoon told me that we should see the ethnic heritage of the person working within this area to be an opportunity rather than as a downside is definitely one thing that I think is lacking in the conversation around cold representation in national security. And that, it will yeah. lead to a severe problem of groupthink where there's a group of people missing from the conversation or perspective that's missing from a conversation. It um, That's what happens with groupthink and the result uh, policy advice is suboptimal. 
and that perpetuates the cycle as well in a way, um, particularly if people do not feel that they are treated as an asset. Um, the risk perception is a really interesting problem because I think as a national security community, we are trained to assess risk based on group characteristics, um, but it loses sight of the individual. And I know you and you recently wrote a piece where I thought it was really telling that you talked about how Australians lose sight of the Chinese people or China as a country made up of people and they see only the state or they see the Communist Party. That's right. Um and that goes back to the point with the survey before as well. You know, with a lot of Chinese Australians, when they think of China, they think of their friends or relatives there. They don't see China as the other. Whereas for people with no personal or professional connections to China, when they think of China, they tend to think of as a uh, immediately as a security threat, as the other, you know, the mm. communist. And that goes back to the Cold War impression as well. And that othering of China um, means that their threat perception of China probably is also higher. It's especially problematic if we're othering Chinese Australians because they do have so much to contribute and a lot of them want to contribute. Um, so how can national security agencies provide greater opportunities for Chinese Australians as well as sort of retaining them throughout a career in the APS? So uh, first thing, of course, is to avoid seeing um, ethnic background or seeing diversity as a burden or as a risk. So we should treat people as individuals, as I was saying before. For example, um, and that, that's uh, my personal experience and as well as experience of a lot of people I know, that when we go to a meeting, um, a classified meeting, often um, people will uh, look at me who being the only Chinese Australian in the room and ask, do you have the right security clearance? Well, they don't ask, you know, any other person in the room for that. So that kind of a microaggression um, should definitely be avoided. So I think we need a lot of more uh, tr cultural training, sensitivity training about how to manage that. And the second one is to um, really value the work of Chinese Australians. Um, and that goes to broader, not, not just national security community, but broader APS. Uh, for example, uh, cult people are often asked to do, to hold cult events, but those things, um, tend to not get recognized. So you hold, you know, harmony week activities or morning teas. Uh, they often being asked, to do that because one, cow people tend to be more junior. Um, and yet these kind of activities, they don't get recognized. They don't count towards promotion. And a lot of the value they bring to the organization when they raise the different perspectives, um, often the middle managers, uh, for example, at EO2 level or, or EO1 level, they don't really understand the different perspectives they bring in. So I think it goes to some of the differences between diversity and inclusion. Mm. I think sometimes cold representation in the APS is recruited for diversity, but once they're inside the organisation, is the rest of the organisation supported and 
and um, trained to include those perspectives and on a day-to-day basis, whether it's from colleagues, from managers, um, not just from the HR team that talks big on diversity, right? Mm. Not just included, but also valued. Mm. Um, And that goes back to promotion statistics. Um, You know, uh, we need to really value the different perspectives and experiences and knowledge that they bring to the organisation. So I think on that note, what has been uh, positive is the recent announcement that the 2013 APS census, um, which closed recently, will for the first time include more questions designed to capture data about cold people and their experiences in the APS. So previous census asked whether an employee was born overseas and whether they speak a language other than English at home. Um, This year, the questions ask employees to describe their cultural backgrounds in more detail. And I hope, I expect that this will actually help the APS to get more data about the experiences of people once they've actually come into the APS and track it across time um, as a bit of a data nerd myself. I think these things are really important because what matters gets measured. And without that data, we don't have a starting point for benchmarking, for assessing progress or for making sort of the proactive changes that we want to see in the community. So hopefully the survey results will help to inform agencies' programs and workforce planning and assess how they're tracking. But I also hope it will help inform the Australian Public Service Commission's cold strategy which they've recently announced and which they're expecting to release in the middle of the year. So if I could give a quick plug for that strategy as well, if you have questions or suggestions for the strategy, or if you just want to share your own experiences on diversity and inclusion in the APS, you can get in touch with the task force at cold strategy, that's C-A-L-D-S-T-R-A-T-E-G-Y at APSC.gov.au. Thank you, Jennifer and Yoon, for sharing your insights and giving us your time and your stories. Um, It's been fantastic conversation. It gives us a lot to think about, about how the community ought to reframe how we think and talk about China, particularly to Chinese Australians um, and to Chinese Australians who might actually aspire for a career in the national security community and be part of those strategic conversations and to be advising government on what is probably one of the most complex and challenging relationships uh, we have today and in the years ahead. So thank you, Yoon, and thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, Olivia. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you to the listeners. Thank you to the listeners. And on that, listeners, if you have any comments um, that you'd like to provide or feedback on this episode or on the podcast series in general, please get in touch. Our email is natsecpod, so N-A-T-S-E-C-P-O-D at anu.edu.au. Bye for now.